This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Humane Podcast. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and you are listening to Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to the show. Welcome back, listeners, to the Humane Podcast. Today, I have a special guest speaker. His name is Daniel Whitenack, and we've got to know each other over the last few months. In fact, last year, I was featured on his podcast. He's the co-host of the Practical AI Podcast, as well as a data scientist at SIL International. Daniel and I hashed it out. We talked about AI, being humane, and a lot of really interesting topics. Daniel, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's great to be here and great to uh, follow up and uh, switch sides, as it as it were, and and uh, be over here on this side on on your podcast. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I love it. I, we this was a few months ago, right? We were talking about in 2019 about being human. We were talking about what technology we're seeing for the evolution in data science tools. We were talking about some of the work uh, both myself and you do in the education arena and about our podcasts. And I think what's amazing is fast forward from then in August 2019 to now in still Q1 slash Q2 2020, it's a whole different world. We are very (laughs) fastly becoming this, this space that is no longer just in person, but online. And I mean... How is working remote? Zoom is saving the world. Zoom is saving the world, unless it crashes. I know Heroku (laughs) crashed a few days ago. Oh, no, I I didn't know that. Uh, How's working remote for you? Is is Zoom been the the saving grace? Yeah, I mean, um, being that I'm on a distributed team, actually... In some ways, like I see people talking online about, oh, I'm bored at home and and stuff, or I, I can't uh, figure out that whole working situation. But it's pretty normal for myself and my team. I'm fairly often on calls with people all across the U.S., but also in Singapore and India and Africa and and all over. So, yeah, mostly via Zoom. 
Now, have you seen that as well, like not just in the United States, who's been hunkering down into shelter in place for everything COVID-19, but for the other countries that you mentioned, like India and, and continents like Africa, have they been taking similar measures from what you've heard? Yeah, so I have calls um, every week with a team in India that I collaborate with. And I think even so it was this week, they similarly to actually where, where I'm at, they went kind of fully remote from their office because they're, they're all um, programmers and, and software engineers and that sort of thing. So they're all working from home as of now. And I don't know when they'll come back from that. But yeah, it seems to be a similar idea. Yeah. You know, I think one of the biggest blessings about working from home is we get to do a lot more research, especially research yeah. in data science. And similar to how we were talking about the evolution of data science and tools back in August 2019, there's been a lot of new tools in the market. There's been a lot of new evolution, especially around language and NLP, which I know is one of your specialties that you work on. Yep. Wanted to see here we are now, you know, fast forward a few months past NeurIPT 2019. What are you seeing, uh, Daniel, as some of the state of the art modern natural language processing? Yeah, it is really interesting. Even like if we go back even like a year ago, things, it seems like are, are vastly different. And what's what's really kind of boosted NLP in the last couple of years are these large scale language models. And so oftentimes what you'll have in an AI model that's processing text is you'll have a series, uh, either one or a series of, of encoders that encodes that input into some internal representation. And then uh, a set of decoders that kind of decodes that into some specific output that you're interested in. So in translation, your encoders would encode into that representation and your decoders would encode into a different language for like text classification. You would again encode, but then you would decode into one of a series of categories of that text. And what's really been interesting is these sort of large scale language models that have been trained like GPT-2 and BERT and uh, Elmo. And there's there's a bunch of other ones that I'm sure people have heard of, but they're trained on a massive uh, set of data, even sometimes for multiple languages, such that you really can apply that model to a wide range of tasks by just fine tuning to one of these tasks like translation or sentiment analysis or text classification with a much smaller amount of data than was required before. And that's kind of led to this explosion in application of, of um, AI in, in NLP because used to NLP, you kind of, you thought about each problem as very different than the other, like dependency parsing or text classification or entity analysis were all sort of different models. Now it's just kind of all generalized in the same sort of framework. It's also amazing to think that there's been so many different tests. You mentioned GPT-2, but we've seen from data sets like Squad to all the different ones that OpenAI have worked on that the high performance is not just in one use case anymore, but it's all across the industry that we're seeing high performance in NLP. I mean, what do you think has led to a lot of this momentum? Yeah, um, it's a good question. So part of it, I think, is that the, the size of the models has increased a lot and they're processing a lot of data. And so these, these word embeddings um, or these representations of text that are learned in the model actually encode a lot about language in general. So it's been shown in a couple of studies that you can actually sort of 
backtrack out of these embeddings, the actual kind of traditional syntax structure of, of text that linguists are familiar with, like grammars and such. And so in these embeddings is encoded a lot of information, which makes it much easier to adapt to all of these different tasks. The second is a, a lot of these models are being trained on, on multiple tasks at the same time now. So one example that uh, was recent was Google's T5 model which really just assumes that the input is text and the output is text. But that input text could include a little tag at the front that says like translate this into German or another tag, which is like, give me the sentiment or another tag, which is like answer this question. And it's actually being trained on all of those tasks at the same time. And so it's learning the best representations of language for multiple tasks, which makes it easier to sort of fine tune and transfer learn that model to to a wide variety of scenarios. So we're talking about the phrase transfer learning, and this is something I heard a lot in 2019 that a lot of researchers, especially from MIT Media Lab, saw that we're having breakthroughs here, that transfer learning was possible. And uh, we're starting to see this, as you mentioned, with translation from languages like English to German. But how possible is transfer learning today? Are we seeing this also with like English to Mandarin, English to Arabic? What's that looking like? Or wh where do you think the state of transfer learning is? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, transfer learning depends a lot on that sort of parent model that, that you transfer from. And there are sort of very multilingual models out there, um, some including up to 100 and I think 104 or 109 languages maybe is the the most. And those certainly learn a lot about the language families that they're working with and can do very interesting things and, and transfer very easily to tasks in, in a lot of those languages. But I'm, I'm glad you brought up the topic of, of languages because that's really um, at the heart of my personal work. So there's people might not know this, but there's actually um, 7,117 languages currently being spoken in the world. So these aren't like dialects or like anything like that. These are actually languages that are being spoken in the world. And, you know, if we think about a multilingual model that has like 104 languages in it, in its uh, embeddings, that its um, language model supports, that's kind of a drop in the bucket, right? And some tasks like speech to text or text to speech, especially in NLP platforms um, only support maybe 10 to 20 languages. And so there, there's a long way to go, I think, in terms of uh, NLP for the world's languages. Um, NLP certainly is not a solved problem at this point, and there's a lot, a lot to do. That being said, there's a lot of interesting things, and you were kind of focusing on the transfer learning part. There's really a lot of interesting things that we can do with these modern transfer learning techniques for local languages. So let's say you're interested in translate creating a translation model for a vernacular Arabic, um, which is only spoken in certain areas. Well, there's a lot of language that's available for standard Arabic, right? So you could train a English to standard Arabic language model on a ton of data and then transfer learn that model to uh, that Arabic vernacular, which is very, it, it's a, a very similar language. And so you're going to have a pretty good chance. So if you, if you kind of leverage the family tree, which is a lot of what we study at SIL and what languages are out there and how they're related, then you can take advantage of these transfer learning things in, in sort of creative ways. 
Now, it's so interesting that you mentioned about vernacular Arabic. I just recently was working in the Middle East prior to the whole COVID-19 shutdown and actually was in some, you know, Ubers uh, with drivers who only spoke Arabic and they didn't speak English. And mm -hmm. it, I'll tell you, it was challenging. You know, I, I got to learn some of these phrases when I was... Uh, out there with tour guides and people in the business district, but it is a lot to learn. And, you know, something I saw that came out on the market just recently, which I wish was there a few weeks ago, but wasn't, is that Google Translate now has uh, announced just in this past week about their uh, live real-time transcription feature for Android. That's so great. prior to this you know, I was on Google Translate, actually, uh, in the Middle East and typing in the phrase in English, translating it to Arabic, pressing the, you know, play the audio or so forth. But it's amazing now. All these breakthroughs are happening in 2020. Yeah. And and I'm really hoping that what we start to see in 2020 is a kind of an acceleration of this technology through the the language, uh, sort of the long tail of languages, um, because with 7,000 languages, if we tackle like one language every six months or 12 months or something like that, it's going to take us a long time to support, you know, things like translation or speech to text in 7,000 languages. So I'm hoping that we see some sort of rapid adaptation technology come about in 2020 that'll let us tackle, you know, 40, 50, 100 languages more at a time. I'm really encouraged that we might see that because for those populations out there that, you know, maybe they get a COVID-19 notice in a language that they don't understand, you know, they're actually, you know, further marginalized because of that, right? If, if they had that technology to do the translation or if they had that technology to interact with their device via voice or, or to access educational material or whatever it is, then they th there's new opportunities that are brought about and they're able to operate in the language that they value. And so that that's part of what I hope. I see this NLP momentum. That's where I hope it goes. I have high hopes for that as well. You know, last year I was at an in-person conference in New Jersey called the Voice AI Summit, and it was all around conversational AI. I spoke with Noel uh, Silver, who's the head of digital at NPR for all their mm -hmm. podcasting initiatives and prior led a lot of AI product management at Microsoft. And Noel and I share the keynote stage. And one thing that we talked about is the dying of languages. And particularly, we brought up the language of Icelandic. And we talked about how this language has been changing with the millennials and the new generation. It is facing the threat of digital extinction. And we went into this conversation to say that a lot of apps are not being built language first to support yeah. all languages. You know, they might only support English and Mandarin and Arabic and the big nine, if you will. And perhaps what we're seeing now from Google Translate and your efforts as well at Ethnolog could be helpful to bridge that gap. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, part of the reason for that is that these underlying building blocks of apps, right? So whether that be the APIs that support um, chat sorts of functionality, which are like entity analysis and sentiment analysis and uh, speech to text and, and these sorts of things. Those building blocks just aren't there in the other languages without you building kind of a custom one yourself. So yeah, we're definitely, um, SIL has uh, been collecting data in, you know, like 2000 languages for since like 1930s. And so uh, I'm really excited to be part of 
part of teams that are starting to leverage that those existing resources, which really haven't been tapped into, I don't think, because they're you know archived in weird ways. They're not in the sort of formats that like AI people typically are used to working in. So I think we're just kind of you know uh, at the uh, uh, at the tipping point where we can really jump in and utilize a lot of that data in creative ways. Yeah, I think that's completely true. And, you know, we're talking here about languages today. Uh, I think there needs to be a lot more support. Again, we're hearing it for English and Spanish and German and Chinese and Japanese. I think even TensorFlow by Google now supports multiple languages. So I think we've been seeing a lot with Mandarin, and I hope we'll see a lot more support with other languages. Daniel, in your thoughts, what are some of the languages that, that you feel are dying or you'd like to see more support for? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, actually, I'm working with uh, our chief um, chief research officer here at SIL, which uh, he's really interested in, in helping us understand where we should put our efforts in terms of our initial development. And that's really an interesting question because there's certain languages, like you say, that maybe aren't being used in the same way that they were before. There's other languages that would be used digitally they're just not supported yet, right? And there's kind of economic concerns and literacy concerns and all of these things kind of all wrapped up. And so we have a lot of data around all of those things. So around economic factors in various countries, around the populations of language communities, where those language communities are, how that overlaps with the economy, how that overlaps with existing data sets. And that's really what the, the ethnologue, which you mentioned, they track all of that. So Gary, what he's been doing is looking at sort of hot spots of where we should be putting effort. And I think a lot of those hot spots are in areas like the Philippines, where there's a lot of languages that aren't supported, but that people are already fairly digital and there's a lot of economic development there. Also in the in Indonesia, Indonesia is one of the biggest emerging markets in the world. And there's over, uh, so I think it's 700 or so languages that are spoken just in Indonesia. And there's, you know, these big tech unicorns that are already existing in Indonesia. And so those are two that, that come to mind that um, there's really not much support out there yet. But I think both economically and impact-wise for those language communities, um, that could uh, that could really make make a pretty big impact. So, I think you're right. All these developing and frontier nations, we're going to see a lot, um, not only with languages, but literacy rate and how important that is that we do bridge the gap on that digital divide. You know, it's not just with these language apps. We're talking about what you're doing at SIL, what we've seen uh, with Google Translate this year, what you've mentioned with Ethnolog. But, you know, it's not always human interaction. A lot of it could be automated. A lot of it could be, you know, quality control, all this QA with new systems that we've seen go online since 2015, like chatbots. It almost yep. seems that today chatbots are everywhere on every app, yep. on every website, it has become synonymous. I, I pull up a website and the first thing I see is a chatbot popping up. It's it's as if they're everywhere. And I mean, are chatbots, you know, one, are they being used for all these different languages? And two, how good are they? So let's start there. You know, where are they on the languages that they're supporting? Yeah, um, that's a that's a great question. So similarly to what I mentioned before, uh, the language support in terms of the 
building blocks of uh, digital assistants and chatbots are fairly limited in terms of languages. So I think Dialogflow, Watson, these other ones that are typically used uh, support, I, and they've done a great job at, at building in support. Um, so not to, uh, you know, speak poorly of them or anything, but it's still, you know, in the tens to maybe 50 languages, 100 languages. And so for building applications like in Indonesia or the Philippines, like we're talking about, there's still a lot of support that's lacking. Uh, one of the areas that we've been putting some effort into recently is question answer, because what we found in running sort of chatbot studies in various places around the world is that for people that are just accessing the internet fairly newly, they uh, maybe on a smartphone, one of the things that they really want to do is just question answer. They just want to ask a bunch of questions and get answers. They're not so familiar with how to get those those answers maybe, or maybe the resources aren't in those language. So supporting question answer, I think would be a big deal in these. And we've started to to work on that front. Um, there's also some new newer question answer data sets from Facebook and Google that are actually multilingual question answer data sets. So I'm hoping, uh, hoping that those kind of bridge part of part of the gap there. But yeah, for chatbots in general, I would say that, um, you know, there's less support for those than there is for like a general technology like Google Translate or machine translation. So it's fewer languages than that. But you can do, again, some creative things to, to bridge the gap, like doing some of this transfer learning and other things to kind of build custom components under the hood to support new languages. Imagine if you could listen to a podcast where James Delos tells you why he bought Westworld. Well, James Delos isn't real, but Christopher Slow of Reddit, Ryan Graciano of Credit Karma, and Cortland Allen of Indie Hackers are real. Code Story is a podcast featuring tech leaders reflecting on their human story in creating digital products. In the show, Host Noah Labhart digs into the critical details about what it takes to change an industry, how a tech visionary got started building their world-changing product, and how they scale their product on their journey. Our tech leaders are not only brilliant builders, they are humans with a human story to tell. If you want to hear the real human stories behind tech, Code Story is the podcast for you. Subscribe to Code Story now on every major podcast platform or visit Code Story at codestory.co. And I think whoever does kind of crack the nut of rapidly adapting those technologies for hundreds of languages at a time rather than, you know, one at a time every six months, I think they're going to have some great momentum in terms of economic success, but also impact for uh, language communities. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And, and as you've mentioned, Daniel, there's been a lot of these data sets out here that are beginning to bridge that gap where we have researchers on competitions like Kaggle or from big companies like Facebook and Google who are working at it. You know, Stanford had their squad, the Stanford question answering data set. They recently uh, re-released version 2.0, which has been helpful for reading comprehension, again, mostly focusing on the English language, but still helping us make a lot of progress with transfer learning. Beyond that, you know, we've seen, of course, with Google, they've had their own, they have their natural questions data set, which has been for question answering. And they've been doing a lot of work in, in open domains. 
And similarly, as you mentioned with Facebook, I think there's a few initiatives there. One of them that um, I've enjoyed looking at before is, uh, I don't know how it's pronounced, is it Baby, right? The Baby <laughs> Project, all around, you know, children and children learning and, and baby tasks, right? To basically get AI to the level of a human child, right? If you can get it to that level, that is a big breakthrough on uh, question answering. What are some other um, data sets that you've seen as well? Yeah, so I, I played around quite a bit with, I believe it's uh, called MLQA from Facebook. So actually, if you just go to Facebook research slash MLQA on, on GitHub, it's there. Um, so that's the first multilingual, um, or it, I, I might be wrong about that, but it's it's uh, one of the first multilingual question answer data sets that I've seen, which I'm hoping really, so like if you imagine going into a new language community with a virtual assistant, imagine if that virtual assistant had the ability to query in a natural language form, query Wikipedia articles, right? Or something like that. So that that's the sort of thing that this could enable. There's still other pieces of that puzzle, like document search and um, and and that sort of thing. But uh, But I think this is a big step in the right direction. So it's amazing to see that these data sets are out here and data sets are made open source to help solve problems, right? Whether we're looking at any of these data sets or we're even thinking of, you know, more modern times and modern times includes like COVID, right? The coronavirus and COVID-19. You know, there's been um, a huge initiative in the last few days where the White House in America said, we are urging AI experts to develop tools for the COVID-19 data set. So there's been a call to action um, actually on Kaggle. They've released the COVID-19 data set. So if you are someone who is interested in natural language processing, this was just recently announced on Kaggle. And the data sets include thousands and thousands of documents and research papers on everything COVID-19, SARS, Ebola, coronavirus, to better understand, guess what, how to extract knowledge and valuable information from these text documents. I mean, isn't that amazing seeing all of humanity work together? Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. And I know that there's also efforts with, um, I think there's various websites where you can, you know, donate computing time to sort of do different, like, protein folding operations and that sort of thing to help. So that's another way. I don't know if it's the same exact data, but I know Allen AI also has a, a page where they're uh, talking about the various data sets related to, to COVID-19. Um, one of the things I really have appreciated about Allen AI in that sort of front is that they also operate the Semantic Scholar project, which we've talked about on the Practical AI podcast as well. And um, that allows you to really quickly find related research and search through research, tag research, and it kind of brings, it bubbles up to the surface the things that essentially that you should be looking at if you're kind of looking through a, a train of, of thought in terms of new techniques or, or new research. And so I think combining something like that capability along with this sort of data could prove to be very, um, very interesting as it kind of bubbles up the correct things um, at the same time as providing access to the right data. It's amazing to see how many open source platforms are out there today, including pre-publishing platforms, Daniel, you know, whether we look at archive or even bio archive, and there's all these incredible platforms 
You're talking about Semantic Scholar. We're talking about Kaggle with the Allen Institute from the late founder of Microsoft, Paul Allen. I mean, I think one of the saving graces of COVID-19 is the world is really coming together in ways that we've never seen before. You know, looking back at 2019, In early 2020, it seemed that we were moving towards isolationism from a research perspective, but it's as if now this has triggered humanity back into a single mission and motive together to Mm -hmm. collaborate and work together. Yeah, uh, it's definitely an interesting time. And um, I know that uh, there are, I think people like to focus on, you know, how everybody's, you know, there's a lot of disruption and that sort of thing. And that's definitely true. And there's a lot of people, you know, experiencing real suffering out there. But at the same time, there's also some kind of new opportunities that are arising. I was part of a group called Masakane, who is working on machine translation for African languages. And we submitted a paper to iClear, which is going to be part of one of the workshops there. And I wasn't going to be able to attend there for various reasons unrelated to COVID-19. But now they've, they've made the conference completely virtual. And so now because of that, I'm, I, I feel like I'm going to actually be, be part of things now. And so iClear is, is a huge uh, machine learning research conference. And so that's another great opportunity to kind of follow the state of the art and join in virtually where, whereas you, you know, you might've been not been able to travel there and they might not have been putting in the effort to make the virtual experience really good, but now, you know, it's all virtual. So that's, that's all of what they're putting the effort into. And so it's a real opportunity for people to learn a lot, to participate in discussions, to watch the sort of luminaries in the field and and all of those things. So looking at these conferences, I, I know last year, NeurIPS particularly, they said, we are limiting the number of seats for a conference. We are doing a lottery system. And there were you know, researchers and esteemed academics who could not get to the conference. Yeah. But this is amazing to see that now something like iClear, where there could be, you know, who knows, thousands of people going to this conference. I mean, now we could even have hundreds of thousands of people tuning in, dialing in online. Yeah. And um, I, I think that there's you know, people are exploring a lot of new ways to keep the momentum going in in the AI community as well. I know you and I were talking about a few of those before this conversation. There's the Kaggle related things and and those things. I've been exploring personally, um, you know, how to, I, I do a lot of workshops at conferences and I had three or four planned this year and that's kind of all, all thrown up in the air. So I decided to put together a sort of virtual AI workshop, like what it would be at the conference and even more, I think that I'm going to do in May called AI Classroom. And that's going to cover kind of all the fundamentals of AI, you know, hands-on examples with both PyTorch and TensorFlow and a bunch of other things, um, examples of computer vision and natural language processing. And so my hope, um, along with you know, my efforts here that we'll be seeing a lot more of these sorts of things pop up, which we probably should have been seeing before this. So COVID-19 has kind of forced us to consider, hey, what's the best way in our modern world to like do something like an AI workshop? It might not be like the day before a conference is the best way to do that because it limits the people that can be there. It limits some of the interesting things we can do with technology in in terms of sharing content and and files and that sort of thing, especially on conference Wi-Fi. Um, So, you know, experimenting with some of these other virtual solutions, I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited to kind of get more involved in that side of things and, and try something new out. 
So if we're looking at virtual conferences, if we're looking at virtual training, what are some of the ways we can keep up virtually besides attending them? Are there certain tools that you're finding very helpful today? Yeah, what, one of the things that I use a ton and which I'll for sure feature in, in that training is Google Colab. And because you can share that uh, work so easily, for those that aren't familiar, Google Colab is, it's kind of like a hosted Jupyter notebook, but it's in Google Cloud. And it kind of operates a lot like Google Docs in the sense that you spin up a new Colab notebook and then um, you kind of have that Jupyter interface where you can do things, but it also has a bunch of stuff preloaded. You can share it with team members very easily and even comment on each other's work. And uh, you're able to run experiments very quickly on a GPU or a TPU that's automatically connected to that Colab instance. And now they've, they've come out with the Colab Pro, which you and I were mentioning and I was mentioning bef right before the, t the jumping on this podcast, I had like four different things running in, in Colab notebooks on GPUs and for super cheap, uh, way cheaper than it would be to like order a GPU and have it sitting in my office. So um, I'm really excited about that. It's, it's a lot of, um, it makes uh, collaborating on these types of experiments very easily. It's not the best way to productionize things, definitely, because it's still a Jupyter notebook. You don't really productionize AI work through a Jupyter notebook, but it does make sort of collaborating on ideas very easily and sharing things and trainings or sharing tutorials and that sort of thing. Now, Daniel, don't you want to have your own TP, uh, T4 or have your own K80 or your own P100 tower sitting uh, at home so you can... Uh... Uh, I would I would love to have that. Unfortunately, um, I I don't have the resources for, for that. I'd have to... I'd have to sell quite a few things to, uh, <laughs> to, to fund that for sure. Yeah, that's one of the, this is, um, so Colab, I always feel kind of like I get superpowers when I use it a little bit because, you know, working for a nonprofit, it's not like we just have like data centers full of GPUs that I can access. Sometimes we have to get pretty creative uh, with funding. So yeah, this has been a, a big one for me. Excellent. No, I love it too. And I've even recommended to students, especially when we encounter infrastructure challenges offline, you know, spin up a Google Collab instance. You could even accelerate it with GPU and TPU, which is more than you could even do on Kaggle, even though they're both Google companies mm -hmm. at this point. So Google Collab is, is excellent. And, you know, I love, I love the software. So I strongly encourage that. Beyond what we're seeing with Google Collab Pro and Kaggle, I mean, we are now uh, fully living in this remote society, which I think is showing how humans can work well with machines. Of course, it will not always be like this. There's going to be ebb and flows, times when we're more in person, times when we're more remote. And I think really what this goes to show for us is how during a pandemic we can keep up with each other. I, for myself in New York City, have hosted already a couple digital dinners, basically these Zoom dinner series where we talk about tech and business and life. And, you know, you can have more than 10 people. You can do breakout rooms. There's even, you know, all these cool new apps that let you even do like professional speed dating online. Mm -hmm. There's one I was just exploring recently that we're going to be using for one of our dinners called Hopin, which lets you literally do speed dating when you're on your <laughs> event. So, nice. you know, if you have a remote dinner that's, you know, more than 10 people, maybe it's 50, 100, 
and you want to get to know each other and you can learn that or definitely connect with Hopin's chatbot and see if it's available in your language as well. You know, beyond that, I mean, again, we are in this pandemic, but keeping up virtually, I think is very important. One thing I've noticed, you know, both yourself and myself, Daniel, as being hosts and co-hosts to podcasts is I'm picking up the phone more. I'm on video more. I feel like human interaction is back again, mm-hmm. even more than prior to the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, it is kind of interesting in that way, how how dynamics shift. And this is this is definitely something that we've seen in chatbots, um, you know, across the world as well, where, you know, there's a lot of people that wouldn't maybe have a long conversation or multiple interactions in a, in a social setting, but they'll spend so much time with a chatbot asking one question after another just to like see what happens to some degree because they get the nugget of truth every once in a while. And so, you know, there is a sort of different dynamic when when you're interacting, whether that be with the with a chatbot or with a person online, there's a sort of there's a different feeling and, and a different dynamic that's at play for sure. And, you know, a lot of it, again, is this digital twins of having these identities through chatbots and these conversations Recently, you know, Amy Webb came out with her Future of Today Institute reports, and one of the biggest ones was about digital twins in 2020, where we're all going to be deep faked and dub faked and (laughs) stupid faked and all these fakes, right, around text, audio, and video. But, you know, I think there's a lot of promise. I think there's a lot of conversations being had in this space around NLP, around transfer learning, around text. And particularly, you know, as as I've mentioned, you know, you're also a podcast host of Practical AI. Can you share with our listeners today, what are some of the conversations that yourself and your co-host, Chris, have with your listeners? Yeah, this has been a great experience. So I think we're on episode 70 something, maybe 80 now, and uh, really enjoyed this experience. Um, The show is really focused on as you might have guessed, the practicalities of being an AI developer these days. And not only for those that are currently AI developers, but those that would like to be AI developers. So we dig into a bunch of the different technology, talking about, you know, what is what is BERT? Um, what does it mean? How is it used? But also talking to practitioners themselves. We just had um, the other day talked to a, a team from Esri who's using satellite imagery to help predict blockages in along roads that the U.S. military is using for disaster relief efforts to kind of help route resources to people that, that need them. And so there's all sorts of amazing stories like that. Um, we've had people on from kind of all, all the major AI um uh, players like uh, Hugging Face and Google and OpenAI and um, Microsoft and Amazon and and all. So yeah, it's been great. It, it's a, an excuse for me to have a, a lot of an amazing conversations and learn about a lot about AI myself. So, oh my goodness! Well, it's amazing to see how the industry continues to grow, and there's so many companies there. I mean, Hugging Face has done a lot of great research. Uh, a lot of the companies you mentioned are doing great research. I mean, from a trend perspective, you've spoken with a lot of the foremost thinkers and, and researchers in the space. I mean, what are some of the trends or, or directions in the industry that you're seeing for NLP throughout you know, 2020 and even into 2021? Yeah, um, I think it'll be interesting this year to follow 
both reinforcement learning and generative adversarial networks, GANs. Both of those technologies get a lot of a lot of hype because of some of the things that they power, like deep fakes and other things that you talked about. But I think that we haven't really entered into a season where reinforcement learning and GANs are really powering a lot of enterprise applications the way that deep learning models have actually penetrated enterprise applications. And so I think it'll be interesting to see if those technologies can penetrate. I see some movement towards that direction now. It's it's easier, easier to uh, make those technologies practical these days. And I was even at a talk um, at the Data Points Summit in Chicago a couple weeks ago, and, and the, one of the people there was using reinforcement learning in um, demand forecasting for, for marketing applications. So I know that it's out there and people are using it. The other thing I think that we'll see a lot of are uh, multimodal sorts of applications where we're no longer just talking about, oh, this is a text application, like we're doing machine translation, or this is a speech application, or this is a computer vision application. I think we're going to see more and more models and applications and usages of AI out there that take both uh, imagery and text, for example, to make some prediction. OpenAI's uh, recent robot hand manipulating the, the Rubik's Cube, that's a good example of that, where they're actually taking imagery data plus sensor data and using reinforcement learning. It's all kind of piled together. So this sort of multimodal uh, approach, I think, um, is something we're going to see more of. Excellent. And as we move into these different modes of learning, uh, whether it's us in the classrooms that are remote or learning with data through NLP and computer vision systems, one thing that we know for certain is that the world is not stopping and we are continuing to move forward with research. You know, it's been such a pleasure to learn from your insights and your podcast and the work you're doing at your organization at SIL here on Humane. Can you share with us any call to action or what's what's next in the works that you're doing uh, today, Daniel? Yeah, definitely. Um, even today, I'm working on a pretty interesting project related to COVID-19, which is translating some health-related information into many, many languages, um, hopefully hundreds rather than just like a hundred, like what Google Translate supports. So I'm going to be having a blog post about that soon. So keep an eye out for that. Also, uh, if people are interested in using some of their, you know, at home time that they have now to level up their AI skills, um, I would recommend checking out that AI classroom virtual training, datadan.io. And of course, um, because all of your friends on this podcast are my friends uh, on, on Practical AI for sure, um, you can use the coupon code PARTNERAI20 for 10% off. And then, yeah, check us out at the Practical AI podcast and can check out more about the work that SIL is doing at SIL.org. Daniel Whitemack from SIL and co-host of the Practical AI Podcast. Thanks for joining us today on Humane. Yeah, it was great to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. What do you think? Did the show measure up to your thoughts on artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education? Listeners, I want to hear from you so that I can offer you the most relevant, trend-setting, and educational content on the market. You can reach me directly by email at david at humanepodcast.com. 
Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcasting app and tune in to more episodes of Humane. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.